0: welcome to frictionless marketing an exploration of how modern marketers are building their brands reaching their audiences and thriving in this post advertising world we're excited to have trista morrison chief of staff to the ceo and svp of corporate affairs at voyager therapeutics on the show today Trista is a seasoned biopharmaceutical executive advisor with over two decades of experience in corporate affairs and stakeholder management. Her career spans a range of significant roles, including Chief Corporate Affairs Officer for Senyona and Vice President of Communications and Patient Advocacy at Sobi in North America. At Voyager, Trista plays a pivotal role in shaping the company's strategic vision, managing investor relations, and driving corporate communications. She has a rich history in facilitating effective communications at various stages of company development, from preclinical to commercial, and has worked extensively in both the U.S. and Europe. Trista's expertise extends to areas such as de corporate social responsibility, and patient advocacy, reflecting her comprehensive approach to corporate affairs. In this episode, Trista shares her extensive experience, tracing her journey from early days in public relations agencies to her current leadership position at Voyager. She delves into the nuances of storytelling in the biopharma industry, the transition from reporter to corporate leader, and the integration of communications with corporate strategy. Trista offers a very unique perspective on the evolution of corporate communications in biopharma and provides insights into the challenges and opportunities associated with this dynamic field. Join us in exploring these fascinating topics and more with Trista Morrison.
1: Krista, thank you very much for joining us. I'm excited to speak with you today. I
2: am so excited too. Thank you for having the call.
1: So I thought maybe um, if it's all right with you, could we start by just talking about your career trajectory? Because I think it's you've kind of touched, you know, a lot of different facets of the industry, and it might be interesting to just um, start off by talking about you know what that's looked like for you.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I would be happy to. So I, I've been very fortunate. I've been in communications and corporate affairs for biopharma companies um, for more than 20 years, and I've had a lot of opportunities to learn and grow in a lot of different areas. So I started my career on the agency side. And, um, you know, I, I often recommend that to younger folks who are asking for advice about starting their careers because I just think that an agency gives you such incredible breadth of experience. You know, once you are in-house, you are focused pretty narrowly on the one company that you are working for and, and the things that are immediately relevant to them. And when you're at an agency, you know, you have dozens of clients. And so you have the opportunity to learn from companies who are free clinical, who are clinical, who are commercial, who are doing cardio, who are doing neuro, who are private, who are public, right? And I just, I think it's such an awesome way to get that breadth of experience at the start of your career. Um, so I've been so grateful for that always. Then I um, became a reporter at BioWorld for a while. That was definitely a passion play. I I love storytelling. I feel like that's really the core of, of who I am and have always been. And just, you know, the opportunity to to really focus on that and really focus on writing was something that I was willing to take a massive pay cut in order to explore. Um, and, I, and, and honestly, I just, again, I think it was such a valuable experience getting to be on the reporter side and really understand what makes a good story. And I will also say that working for a daily newspaper um, taught me that there is no such thing as writer's block because you just got to get it done every day. Um,
1: I can only imagine.
2: (laughs) Yep. So I went from there in-house. My first in-house role was at Ironwood Pharmaceuticals. I had the incredible opportunity to join that company just a few months before the PDUFA date, right? The FDA decision on the, the drug that they had been working on for 14 years. And so... It was really incredible to be a part of that journey as that company was transitioning from a research and, you know, discovery and development organization into a commercial organization and that's it's an incredible transition and it was so exciting to be part of that journey. Um I started there doing corporate comms and both internal and external. And then over time I expanded into product comms there. So I still sat in corporate, but I had a dotted line to the commercial organization. And I got to be a part of all the brand planning and the commercial leadership team meetings. And so that was, was a really great opportunity. Um, from there, I went to Sobi, which is a European rare disease company. Um, I did both corporate and product there. Sobi had a number of FDA-approved um, products. And so I did corporate and product there and picked up patient advocacy which, uh, patient advocacy when you're working in the rare disease space in particular is such an incredible opportunity. If um, anyone ever has a chance to be in that space, I would, I would say, take it. It's, um, it's fantastic. And then I moved to Sanyona, which was another European rare disease company. And there I was doing corporate and, uh, we didn't actually have product because Sanyona was still in the clinic, but, um, I was doing corporate, I was doing advocacy, and I picked up investor relations. That was a great, uh, a great opportunity. It was a company that was publicly traded in Sweden and was interested in expanding to a US NASDAQ listing. So that was a great, a great journey to be on there. And now I am at Voyager. And so Voyager is a publicly traded NASDAQ listed um, company focusing on neurogenetic medicine. And my role here is I run corporate affairs, which includes corporate cons. Again, um, we're preclinical, so we don't really have product cons yet, but corporate cons, advocacy. I share investor relations with our CFO. And I'm also chief of staff to our CEO. So that's been a new role for me uh, and has been a great learning experience, um, getting me a little bit more, I'd say, out of the comms vertical and more into corporate strategy.
1: Right. So people who are listening and thinking about a career in pharmacoms, you pretty much hit every single possible step along the, the, the tour there. And the one thing you did not mention, actually, is that the Ironwood experience, in fact, ended up being a co-promote situation, you know, with Big Pharma, which also is, of course, one of those um, I don't know, kind of wild cards, and that's where we first um, started working together.
2: That's absolutely right. Yep, and uh, yeah, I've never, I've never worked directly in big pharma. The companies I've worked with have always been uh, a bit on the smaller side, but I've had some great opportunities to kind of touch the big pharma space through, like you said, through partnerships um, and also when I have been on the consulting side and on the agency side, you know, having some great opportunities to interact with big pharma there too.
1: And you you just mentioned, you when you were on the consulting side and um, in the middle there, you did have a consultancy, uh, which was um, called, in my game is right, PR with purpose.
2: Yes, that is correct.
1: And, and so can you share with us a little bit about, you know, I guess let's, Tell us a little bit about what you did as a consultant PR with Purpose, and then let's talk maybe about how you're ensuring that that purpose remains a central tenet um, now with Voyager and, you know, in the rest of your um, endeavors.
2: Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I got into consulting sort of by accident. Uh, it was when I came out of Sobe. So I actually ended up getting laid off from Sobe, which is... One of those things that happens in uh, the biopharma industry and um, and at first, I was looking for another full time in-house job, and then mm-hmm. i was I was speaking with some folks at a PR agency, and they oh. had kind of said to me um, you know they were they were interested in me coming in." In house with them, or coming to work for them full time, and I had said, you know, I don't, I don't really want to go back to agency quite yet. I don't think I'm at that point yet in my career. And they said, well, would you consider just doing some consultant for us because we could really use, you know, some senior level uh, help. And you know, it's going to take six months to get another full time in house, the level VP or fee level position. So, uh, you know, how about we consult in the interim? And I said. Oh yeah, sure. Okay. That makes sense. So I started, um, I started consulting and I would spend about half of my time, uh, doing work for the agency for their clients and the other half of my time doing my, my own consulting and my own projects. And some of those were for, you know, separate biotech companies that I just had relationships with people at and who needed some help. And then I also, uh, started working with, uh, some nonprofits in that context as well. Uh, so that was a great experience. So, um, and then I did that again when I came out of San Yona, and I was between San Yonah and Voyager. I did some consulting again, uh, and I and I think, you know, I I loved consulting. It's it's awesome to have a little bit more control. I think of your schedule, and um, it's something I definitely see myself going back to at some point in the future. I, I had some really great advice uh, when I was consulting and then I got the offer from Sanyona and I was kind of torn about whether to, to stay consulting because I'm loving it so much or whether to go back in-house. And um, another consultant, he gave me some really good advice. He was like, consulting will always be there for you. you. He said, you know, I've been a consultant for 20 years and I've gone in-house three times in the middle. It, you can always come back to it. And so, uh, And so that's what I did. And I guess to circle back to your question about purpose, um, you know, I just, I've always felt like communications has gotta be rooted in strategy, right? It's gotta start with achieving your corporate goals. Like what, what are you trying to achieve as a company? What do you need to achieve to be successful? And how can communications really support that? Because if if, you're, if your communications is not helping you achieve your corporate goals and your strategic goals and your vision, then like, it's kind of just vanity press and I'm not really sure why you're doing it, right? So I just, uh, the purpose part felt really important to me and to kind of what I believe. And that's why, Paul, I was so excited to to reconnect with you and to hear, you know, some of the things you've been talking about in your podcast and I just got your book. And so I'm only like, I'm only like chapter one, so I can't, you know, I can't say too much. But so far, I love it because I feel like you are also so focused on purpose.
1: Well, we we are because we think we being, you know, obviously the whole team here, but myself included. Um, and we, we also interpret it through a similar lens to what you just said, which is purpose isn't just about, you know, doing good in society. It's also about what is the purpose of the company? you know what is the purpose of the business and um you can't do good in society if you don't if you don't you know achieve your business purpose first and foremost
2: yeah a hundred percent i i agree is it's important on both levels and and it's so funny because i mentioned earlier that like storytelling was at the heart of kind of how i define myself and and who i think i am and and have always been like since i was four years old and writing stories about unicorns and like and then i heard (laughs) you i heard you talking on a podcast about story making and you were talking about like the difference between storytelling and story making and and i just and i'm sure you can sum that up better than i ever could but i heard that and i was like oh No, that's what I am. I'm a story maker, so I'm just. I I feel like I feel like I totally have to shift my narrative now.
1: You know, it's it's funny because we've um, when we landed on that terminology, right? It it was very much the way you described it, which is we were looking at all the work we had done over the previous year or two, in saying this feels fundamentally different from what I see when I judge awards in the PR industry and things like that. How would we explain what makes it different? And that, that is what it was. it was. It was a more active role in making the story as opposed to telling the same story again and again or using a different spokesperson to retell the same story. Um, Anyways, I'm glad you picked up on that, and I'm glad that you identify with it as well, all the way back to your, your unicorn days. I take it <laughs> you did not make any unicorns, though.
2: No, no, I didn't, <laughs> but... <laughs> No, but, uh, but I just, yeah, I loved the way that you, that you phrased that. And, and, and then even like, so in the beginning of your book, you know, you give some examples about like Patagonia and you talk about like the reason that they are viewed as like a really authentic company who lives their values and and that people really resonate with their brand is because they actually do that, right? Like they, they're actually doing the work. They, every decision that they make in their business strategy, right? From where they're sourcing materials to how they're, you know, accessing labor to how they're shipping to, I mean, every single thing they're doing is true to those values.
1: That's right. That's right. And <laughs> it's a little bit of a, a um, little bit of a preview here, but sort of the next, evolution of how we're talking about this is that brands need to move and this is talking about commercial brands now not the corporate entity as much but you know so much emphasis is put on brand identity which is what a brand looks like and sounds like and the experiences the brand has um which are all relatively external things right where it comes from um versus brand character and brand character is what you can rely on it for what actions it will take, what it will stand for, you know, does it provide great service? Is it trustworthy? All those kinds of things. Um, anyways. So yeah, you can that's see that we're, total... we're definitely in the same area here.
2: Yes. And that, so that's like one of the reasons I was so excited when you asked me if I wanted to come talk about this stuff with you on your podcast, because like what you're talking about on the product side is I think hundred percent relevant, on the corporate side as well, and in patient advocacy, and really in, in all aspects of corporate affairs, right? Because I mean, I've had, you know, leaders come to me and they say, you know, how can we, we want to look like a more patient centric company? Like, how can we launch a campaign that makes us look like a more patient centric company? And it's Thank like, you. so, well, let's start with like, what are you actually doing to be patient centric? Where are you incorporating? patient viewpoint in your strategy and how are you you know letting that inform your strategic decision making and the decisions that you're making about the business right like where like it's kind of like you got to take it back to back to the basics there and say well like yeah how are you actually being patient-centric and then and then we can think about how to talk about that right And and it's And it's totally the same in corporate, I think, in corporate communications and corporate strategy. Like, I can't tell you how many times I feel like in my career, a CEO will say to me, like, I hate our website. It doesn't show who we are. And my, you know, my reaction is always, so who are you? And and it's amazing how, how often that question gives people pause, right? And I'm like, okay, so so I think that's the problem, right? You really have to figure out who is this company today? And where are you trying to get to in three to five years, right? And that's like your LRP process, your long-range planning, which is a strategic process. How are you going to get there? You got to get tight on that. Like You have to know what is your vision? What is your mission? What are your three-year you know, goals as a company? And, and then what, is your, what are your one-year corporate goals? Like, you have to know that before you can communicate it. And so oftentimes I feel like when there's like, when you're feeling like your communications doesn't really represent, you know, who you are as a company, it's often because the strategy isn't, maybe isn't quite crisp enough, or maybe doesn't fit with how you've evolved. Because like in biotech, things move fast, right? Products succeed, products fail, products are partnered, somebody in licenses or requires something. I mean, things, things change quickly. And so in my mind, you sort of always have to be thinking about is that the way we're talking about our company, does that still reflect the strategy that we are actually trying to execute here and vice versa?
1: It's interesting. I mean, I agree with everything you're saying. And I think it applies well beyond biotech. Although you could argue in biotech, it was typically smaller, smaller companies, smaller teams. Um, and a, a CEO or chairman usually exerts a lot more direct influence over the decisions everybody makes, right? It's a little bit more direct, a direct line as opposed to these big sprawling organizations. Um, but what you're reminding me of is something that has felt very, um, I don't know, just sort of uh, dissonant for me ever since I entered the communications industry is, it's like in every one of these industry-focused senior level conversations. So picture things like the Arthur Page Society, et cetera, where you've got the, the most senior people in communication sitting around a table. And inevitably, the conversation always turns to griping about having a seat at the table, right? And how communications needs to have a, a, a quote unquote seat at the table. And it's it's happening right. Increasingly, people in our line of work have a seat at the table. I mean, you're the chief of staff for the CEO in your company, um, yep. but it's also like, well, what are you going to do with that seat? Let's stop talking about like wanting a seat at the table, which in many cases manifests as just offering opinions on things. Right. So there's a business strategy conversation, and then the communications person weighs in on like, well, how will you know how is this going to play, you know, with employees or investors or you know whatever. Um, so you're kind of just there to offer opinions as opposed to what you're saying is you're driving the strategy and saying, not in the sense that you're necessarily writing it, you know, like part of it. And you're saying, if I can't communicate this clearly enough, you're not, you're not there yet.
2: Right. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's, you're absolutely right with that. And, um, I, I have often found in my career that communications is a forcing function for strategy, right? Because a lot of times it's not until you get asked the question that like, you know, somebody says like, what's your approach to drug pricing? And then you all look around the table at each other and you're like, what is our approach to drug pricing? Hey,
1: how know, we do, how do we feel... When they do a report and.
2: <laughs> right. So it's like, it, it's so, so often I, I find that like um, it's, it's a great communications is absolutely a forcing function for strategy. and. And it's interesting that whole seat at the table that you that you bring up, you know, I I mean, I do sympathize with that. And I will say that I have been really intentional in my career in moving towards that and looking for that and advocating for that. Right. Like I have been offered positions that don't report to the CEO. And I have not taken those positions, right? Like I have been offered positions that, you know, aren't on the leadership team and I've not taken those positions. I mean, I think that um, it's a little, I don't know which is the chicken and which is the egg, but you do have to have a seat at the table. You have to know what's happening in the organization to be effective as a communicator, right? Like you're only as effective as, as the information that you have. And sometimes like I've I've kind of tried to explain this to CEOs during the interview process or, you know, to folks as I'll say, um, OK, so look, the reason that the Harry Potter books are so awesome is because when like the big reveal happens in chapter 35, your reaction is like, oh, my God, of course, of course, I can't believe I didn't see that coming. But it all makes perfect sense. Right. You don't get that reaction if you don't leave the wand on the table in chapter two. So like, you can't call me at chapter 30 and say, oh, hey, I need you to write a press release on this thing that's about to happen. Like, we need to be talking about where this company is going way back at chapter two. And we need to be leaving those wands on the table, right? And that's a-, it's it's a That's tr- a
1: great it's analogy. <laughs> 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 What's it's,
2: it's tricky because you don't you don't want to get ahead of yourself, right? Like you don't want to be- kind of talking about things you haven't actually done yet but you can leave breadcrumbs you've got to help people understand how you're thinking about where you're going so that when you do that big bd deal at chapter 35 you don't want your analysts and your investors being what the like why didn't they do that deal you want the reaction from the community to be oh my god what a smart deal of course like of course they did that that's so smart that makes perfect sense right like
1: it's great. Yeah. It's and it's it's sort of full circle to the point about storytelling and story making, because for me, a lot of times in the middle between chapter two and chapter thirty, you don't actually have news. Right. Yeah. Like like chapter thirty is going to be the news, but there's nothing in the middle there that's actually newsworthy. And so you can do all the owned media you want and all the corporate narratives and all the storytelling on your website and you know, executive visibility and all that stuff. And that's, that's part of it. It's part of what we do, but you're not really generating any attention or changing that much of how people think about you. And that's where the story making fills the gap is if you have no news, what are you going to do that people would talk about? So I love this idea of leaving wands on the table, you know, (laughs) along the way.
2: Yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting because I think You know that story making concept of like filling the gap. That's is one way to look at it. But like the other thing, where I would maybe give like kind of the opposite viewpoint on that is like coming back to what we said about purpose. Is like what are you trying to achieve right now? Right, like what as a business are you trying to achieve? Because like you need to continue to leave the breadcrumbs. Right, you need to continue to be a part of the conversation. You don't want to like quote unquote go silent but on the other hand i mean like this and this kind of makes me think of investor relations it's like i don't know like we're well funded for a long period of time we're focused on long-term goals like is there like do we need to have a really near-term focus on the share price because like we're not going to need to access that for a while. I mean, you have to like you have to always, of course, be respectful of your your investors. It is their money, and you got to try to create an environment where people have on ramps and off ramps, and they can make their individual choices about what fits for them in their investment models. But like, it's a, think about the corporate goals. Like maybe a, a better example is like you know I I worked in um in a rare disease community at at Sobe, and you know, we have these amazing stories and and sure we can go out and we can go out and we could spend a lot of money telling stories about the people in this community and their experiences. But to what end? Because this is a ultra, ultra rare disease. There's a thousand people who have this disease in the US and every single one of them is already in the advocacy community and in our network and like there is no chance if you go, you can go out and you can do, you know, radio media tours and satellite media tours <laughs> and you can try to get this disease talked about on, on the Today Show. There is zero chance that there is a person who is sitting out there with this disease undiagnosed who's going to say, oh my God, that's what I have. And the reason that there is zero chance is because if they weren't getting treatment by the age of four, they would have passed away already. Right? So like, it's just, you have to like, really, I think, really yeah. think about the business need too as like, why, you know, what are you trying to achieve in, in telling these stories? Because if, if that's, if it's not going to support the business need, maybe you actually don't need to be spending money doing it. Maybe you could put that money towards something else. You know, like for us, we talked to the advocacy group about what do you guys really need? And they said, look, our disease is on newborn screening. And we know that every one of the 52, every one of the 50 states is doing it. Like we know every state is, is doing this, but there's two ways to do the screen. And one of them is more accurate than the other. And what we don't know is which states are using which approach. So, okay. Well, let's spend our money on that. Let's give you a grant so you guys can go out and do that research and get those answers. And then you can do an advocacy campaign aimed at like, actually trying to educate the states who aren't using the more accurate approach as to why it's important and trying to help them get the funding they need to do that right like that's where you can really make a
1: difference yeah that's great that's great i mean it's that it's that same you know uh tendency towards action right um so so here's another i guess twist in the story because so voyager is a gene therapy company right
2: Yep. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> genetic medicines. So our, our, our genetic te- technically neurogenetic medicines, our lead product is actually an antibody, but yes, we are known for our gene therapy expertise and most of our pipeline is gene therapy. That is correct.
1: So if you think about, um, kind of the role communications plays in laying the tracks ahead of the train of a company and even industry, Gene therapy is certainly one of these that's really, you know, it's still in its early stages. But you could see a world where it either becomes the future of medicine or it goes the way of nuclear energy or, or GMOs, where society shapes a narrative about it that's not really science-based, right? And yep. that narrative ends up holding the whole industry back or derailing the, the, the train, so to speak. And yet, we don't have a mechanism through which, you know, the companies that are in this sector combine to tell the sector's story pretty much anywhere, including nuclear energy, right, including uh, GMOs. Um, And and in the the rare cases where we try to do that through associations like the Pharma Association, you know, PHRMA in in D.C. or whatever, it's usually relatively ineffective, not as effective as we are at telling our own story as a company. And so the company's narrative ends up contributing to sort of laying that foundational, you know, laying those tracks, so to speak. So I guess I'm I'm curious now, having said all that, like what your thoughts are when it comes to, sure, you got to meet the business's objectives, but then making sure you don't get derailed by this sort of larger industry perception down the road.
2: Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. I think, um. In my experience, this is where um, as like, you know, a chief of staff or a senior level communicator who's working really closely with the CEO. I think this is where sometimes you really have to kind of take your CEO's lead on where they want to prioritize their time and energy and the company's time and energy, right? Because I think sometimes you have leaders who they are very, very passionate about, you know, being on the the cutting edge of talking about, you know, whatever the new approach is or the new technology or the issue, right? Whatever it is. And that that's something that they have a lot of personal passion around and it fits really well with something that the company is trying to achieve in the future. And so then, yeah, absolutely. And then I think your you know your job as a community as a communicator is to is to support that and and find ways to try and tell that tell that story and and do that education work. but i think um I think probably more commonly you you kind of have to think about where you are in the industry, right because I mean at Voyager. We're a preclinical company. We've got like 116 employees. Like, I don't think that trying to educate the world on gene therapy is, I mean, it's it's a fantastic goal and it's noble and it needs to be done. But like, I don't think it's where we can invest our incredibly limited time and resources when there are companies like Novartis who has, you know, an incredibly successful FDA-approved gene therapy product and their companies like Surrepta, right? There are companies who are so much bigger than us and so much better resourced and can really lead in those conversations. So I kind of feel like, you know, sometimes you just have to also, it depends on your CEO. It depends on uh, the company and the stage that you're at. I I think there's a lot of things that you have to kind of consider.
1: It sounds very much like, um, like know thyself, right? And, um, it's interesting. There's, there's a lot of different sort of ways. I think that plays into our work is, you know, sometimes communications, you can pick whatever analogy you want here, but can, can get you over your skis or whatever, where, you know, where the communications team is trying to create a perception that the business doesn't necessarily reinforce. Right. And and in those cases, of course, it's same thing of know thyself. Um, Yeah. You know, that's sort of the first act here of being able to communicate well, kind of going back to knowing the strategy, but also being realistic about where you are in the pursuit of that strategy.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's right on the mark.
1: So um, I realize uh, we're coming up on time here. Um, I have one question I kind of want to come back to that brings us back to the beginning a little bit is you started out by saying that one of your strong recommendations to people entering our industry is to start an agency life. Um, Later in the conversation, you mentioned um, that when you were going to Voyager, you felt like a return to agency. You weren't ready for it yet, which certainly implied that that might happen later in your career or at a future time. So is that something that's like? Uh, is there a, is there an arc there that you're recommending, or is that just kind of where you're at personally right now?
2: Yeah, I think that's just my own personal personal journey. Uh, I think that you know what I have found is that um, sometimes when you are running comms and you're in house and you're in smaller biotechs, it can get a little lonely. You know, because um, it can be hard being kind of the only person in the organization who really understands what you're doing and and why and the value that you're that you're trying to create and and, and kind of kind of uh, constantly having to to educate your peers and your, your boss and your board and, and it's just um, uh, it's I think being in-house is incredible because. You get super, super emotionally bought in to your company, or at least I do, right? Like when I'm, when I'm in house, I, I am all in and I am a hundred percent emotionally con- connected to that job and that company and that mission. And, and, you know, I, I just, I put everything I have and then some into it and into being successful. And one of the things that I really liked about, um, when I was consulting, was especially when I was consulting um, and working with uh, an agency, Suddenly I was like surrounded by all these people who were communications experts. And I was like, oh, this is so fantastic. Like they're, they're challenging me. <laughs> I'm not they're alone. Like, I know, right? Like they have them, have ideas. They're thinking about things differently than I'm thinking about them. Like this is awesome. Like I, I loved that. Um, I, I found that just really Energizing and invigorating, and I thought to myself, "That's something that I want more of." I also really uh, enjoyed. I loved being a strategic advisor to folks, um, versus being sometimes, you know, like I'd say, like elbows deep, knee deep, shoulder deep in it, in the operationalizing of it, which is um, it, they're just different experiences, and I think they're both super, super valuable to have. Um, and I have been on the operational side for a long time now so I am yeah like for me personally I'm kind of thinking that maybe that maybe that will be my next step but honestly you never know right like I just keep trying to to kind of focus on focus on what what's right in front of me and and get that done and and then and then see what comes I mean I will say that um Every single job I've had throughout my entire career has come through networking. I've never submitted a resume Um, cold and had success. So I think that's, you know, I guess if there's another piece of advice to, you know, folks out there and building your career, your network is so important, right? I mean, the way that I got my job at Voyager was because... I was um, having coffee with uh, this gentleman, Michael Higgins, who uh, he a long time ago was the CFO at um, Ironwood and he hired me. He actually was the hiring manager who hired me into Ironwood Pharmaceuticals all those years ago. And, you know, he since has moved on. He got into the venture capital world. He started doing boards. And so he and I are, are having a coffee and he said and, and talking about, you know, my journey and his journey. And he says, you know, I'm chairman of the board of this company, Voyager, and we just hired a new CEO. And he's a first time CEO. And uh, I, I think it can be really helpful to him. I think the two of you might work really well together. I'd, I'd like to introduce you. and 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 that's how I ended up and that's That's it that's the magic yeah so so I just think you know the network is it's it's super great and definitely take take every of every opportunity to build it and nurture it I
1: think that's really good advice and obviously it applies both for potential job opportunities but then also on the media side and everything else that we do is is both um, communications based but also very relationship based
2: like the fun part too, right? Like that's the I guess to like bring it all back to purpose and and like action and 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 making versus telling. And I mean, like, I mean that's the most satisfying part, honestly. Right? Is is just getting to have these relationships, right? And 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 like now I'm at the point where like I just got back from the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference. I'm like, I mean, there are so many people who we've been in each other's orbit for more than twenty years now, right? And They've been on agency and reporter and in-house and I have, and it's like just sitting down and nurturing those relationships is honestly the most enjoyable part of the journey for me at this point.
1: I could not agree more. And I'll also <laughs> just add to that. The earlier you do it, the more valuable it is down the road. It's just like paying into a 401k. So <laughs> um Well, Trista, thank you so much. This has been great. And uh, I'm sure people are going to really enjoy hearing your insights. And uh, we thank you for your time and, and for sharing them with us here today.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me. This has been such a fun conversation and I look forward to more in the future.
1: Likewise. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Frictionless Marketing. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out Paul's best selling book, Friction Fatigue What the Failure of Advertising Means for Future Focused Brands. In Friction Fatigue, Paul explains to readers why advertising is broken and provides a frictionless marketing framework to help build your brand in an era where advertising is no longer the answer. You'll learn how to protect your business against competitors and lead the pack with fresh marketing strategies that will help you prepare for a future where the consumer rules. Friction Fatigue is now available on Amazon and as a book on tape on audible.com. Thanks again for listening.